So we're going to look together at Matthew 27, verse 57 through chapter 28, verse 10. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now, when it was evening, that is on the day that Christ was crucified, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I rise again. Therefore, order for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards quaked from fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And Behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and report to my brothers to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please, let's join together, and then you may be seated and praying for God's blessing on his word. Father, we... We love your word. We love the eternal word, Father. We pray that he will speak through my lips and that you will be honored here. You who raised your son, you who gave your son. Father, we praise your son. And in praising him, we praise you. Now, guide us into your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It is interesting to note that that following the death of Jesus, certain men who had not necessarily been willing to identify publicly with Jesus prior to his death, identify with him very boldly. We're told in, in Matthew, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who's known to us today as Joseph of Arimathea, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus, went for the body and took it And as a rich man, he could afford not just a a pile of stones or a a little container, but he had a a hewn hewn 
grave in the rock. And he took the body of Jesus together with another prominent man that we're not told of in Matthew, but we find in another gospel, and that was Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus at night because he was afraid, but he talked with Jesus, to whom Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can on no wise receive the kingdom of heaven. The one who to him, he said, Father, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That man was afraid of Jesus and did not want to publicly identify with him at that point. But here, evidently persuaded by the death of Jesus, brought to an understanding that Jesus was worthy of their worship, they go and take his body. They identify with it right when the cause seems lost. Right when everything seems darkest, they say, give us the body. And they take the body. They must not have endeared themselves to the rest of the Jewish leaders. The rest of the Jewish leaders want to make sure that Jesus remains in the grave. And I'm not sure whether they're actually trying to seal it from the inside or from the outside. <laughs> I really wonder, they say his disciples will come and steal the body away, but having seen the bodies of the dead rise and walk in the streets of Jerusalem, as they had that day that they asked Pilate to do this, it seems to me, or the day before they ask him, it seems to me quite, quite possible that they're looking to seal that body in the tomb and don't want that body coming out, and they're not so afraid of the disciples as they are of Jesus himself. So Pilate, at this point in the story, reappears. We last saw him washing his hands and saying, his blood's not on my hands. He says that, he disappears, the crucifixion takes place. He reappears when they ask for the body. And then the final sight we have of him in Scripture, he's mentioned later in, by Peter, but um, the final sight we have of this man is him saying to the the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews who come to him and ask for the guard and the sealing of the grave. You have a guard, you go and do it. It's kind of like, I want very little to do with this. I am not in your camp. It's almost like a formal statement. You do it. I have nothing to do with you guys. It is interesting to know that, that in the, the African church, in the, in the church in Ethiopia, and in I, I just learned from... I think from, uh, from our Egyptian friend Patrick, in, in Coptic Christian Egypt, there is a saint day for Pilate. And the, um, the tradition that's been received is that Pilate uh, came to faith. There are two main lines of tradition about Pilate. One is he got Caesar angry at him and Caesar put him to death. The other one is that, and he did that by massacring Jews up by the, by the Samaritan mountain. And the other tradition is that, that he got Caesar mad and was put to death. But that one says that it was his faith in Jesus that led to his crucifixion. And so we don't know. We can hope. Certainly, his reaction to these events is the kind of reaction that I hope we all have to be sobered, to be looking at Jesus, to be thinking his statement, this is the king of the Jews. 
And the leaders of the Jews say, no, 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 no. Put it down that he claimed to be the... He says, what I've written, I've written. He had said, what is truth? But he knew truth. And he said, I've written it. Let it be stated so on the cross. So Pilate disappears into the mists of history. The tomb is sealed. And a guard is set there. They're doubly securing it. They're... <laughs> I don't know what a seal would do on a tomb, but it must have had some utility. The guard is a little bit more of a warning and a, 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 a protection for this man not rising from the dead. The day that follows the Good Friday passes, and on the third day, measuring a day by Friday, Saturday, Sunday, third day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go down to look at the grave and and we know from elsewhere they're going down with spices they're wanting to do more for the body of Christ and we read here that behold a severe earthquake had occurred so evidently prior to their going there there had been an earthquake local not not regional because it says an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And so this appearance of this angel earlier in the day seems to be connected to the earthquake, and it's the cause of the rolling away of the stone, this angel's power. And so the angel is sitting there, and it's an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. His appearance is like lightning. He is so bright and glowing and bristling with light. His clothing is white as snow. The guards are shaking and they become catatonic. They, they, they can't grasp this thing. It's beyond their ability to deal with because these things don't happen. You know, they, they are the kind of people who deny the resurrection, who say, no, these things don't happen. The, the miraculous, the phenomenal, these things. We are governed in this world by the laws of the world and the universe, and they are them, and they are not gods. They are them, and those are the things that exist. And they, so they're materialists. You know, they're the people who say, what I can see and understand, and what I can see under a microscope or a telescope, that's what's real. And this is beyond their ken, what they know. So the guards become like dead men, but the women who come are not like dead men. They are looking at the angel, and the angel speaks to them. He says, I know that you're looking for Jesus. Don't be afraid. He's not here. He's risen. Then he says, come here and look. Now, now that you've looked, and he's showing them evidently the grave clothes lying there that he had been wrapped in. Uh, the same thing that Peter sees and is convinced that Jesus has risen. So they see the grave clothes, and the angel says, now, don't be afraid. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. It says, go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it. Go tell that he has risen, and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now they leave the tomb. They leave it rapidly. They obey. He says, go quickly, and they go quickly. They left the tomb quickly with fear, and the fear is obvious, but also with this great internal, as yet 
not totally realized, but anticipatory, you know, looking forward to something, thinking perhaps, perhaps, perhaps this joy in them, great joy. So they have fear mingled with great joy and they run to report to his disciples. And then we read, behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him and Jesus said, don't, don't be afraid, go and take my word to my brothers to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. They recognize him, but not initially. We were told that initially they didn't recognize him, then they understand who he is. This happens with the disciples as well. Initially, they, they don't recognize. There's something that's the same. There's something that's different. I'll talk about that in a moment. But what seems interesting to my mind is that, is that the angel comes down and rolls back the gravestone, but he doesn't raise Jesus. And in fact, we're not told that Jesus was waiting inside the grave for the stone to be rolled back. You know, standing there saying, when's the angel going to get here so I can get out of here? Jesus has already risen. And Jesus, in his resurrected body, has powers and abilities like you will one day have. We'll talk about this in a moment. In his resurrected body, he can walk through doors. He does that when they're locked in an upper room, but he just comes right through it. Jesus, I think, this is speculation it's not found in the words it may be sort of indicated he's gone he's already out of that tomb but the angel comes to make it clear to the human beings that Jesus has risen that grave can't hold him he's gone it's a it's a beautiful thing and then it's as though the angel has been told one thing and that's to get them to Galilee go to Galilee you guys go to Galilee you'll see him up there but Jesus loves these women And so he will not let them go to Galilee without appearing to them. And he appears to them. And the anticipation becomes reality. And they are changed. Nothing is more obvious in the Bible than that the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. Changed everything. It changed his disciples from cowards into brave men. It changed many, many people from those who weren't willing to recognize him and were ashamed of him, the people who proclaimed him and even gave their lives for him. We we speak about the cross and rightfully because on the cross Jesus bore our sins, taking the wrath of God. But the cross was not the victory, and it's not your victory. The resurrection is the victory. The resurrection is your victory. That is the glory. That is the thing that we need today. We need to be men and women, boys and girls, who are utterly convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, and utterly convinced of this, who go and live accordingly. You know that when Paul went out, the Apostle Paul, he became an apostle by seeing the risen Jesus. It was a mark of the apostle that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. And Paul was given that that later vision of Jesus that, that came to him on the road to Damascus, which allowed him and caused him to be an apostle. And when Paul went and preached, what did he preach? Well, he did preach the cross, 
but the, the great theme of his preaching always culminated in the resurrection. So he goes to Athens and is invited from the marketplace where he's been talking about Jesus day after day to go up to the Areopagus where all the bright minds of Athens gather to discuss things, the philosophers. And he goes up there and he speaks to the philosophers there on Mars Hill at the Areopagus. And this is how he ends his sermon to those wise men of the world. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The proof that God is going to call us before him into judgment and that we need a savior is found in the fact of the resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead is the evidence that we need. It's proof to all men. Paul's no fool. He knows many men will say, that doesn't prove it to me, but he says to you, you deal with this. If Jesus was raised, it's proof. It's proof for all men that God has established a judge and a savior and that one day you will come into his presence needing the Savior, because you will be judged. At the end of his life, he's in Jerusalem, and he's on trial. He's been brought before the Sanhedrin. There's been a riot because he's gone into the temple many years after he he preaches at Mars Hill, many years after he met Jesus. And in that assembly of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, he calls out, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. He says, my whole life amounts to my proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead and that there will be a resurrection of the dead. That's everything. He says, I'm on trial because I have preached the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Everything. Hope and resurrection. So I want to say four things this morning about the resurrection this should make it vitally important to you this should lead you to praise god that jesus rose and to identify with him in his resurrection to realize that if you are christ if you've been born again what does born again require like jesus spoke about to nicodemus says unless you're born again you can't enter the kingdom of heaven he says can i go back into my mother Jesus says, no, but unless you're born of the water and the blood, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That second birth that Jesus, that miraculous thing that Nicodemus doesn't get, requires dying, being with Jesus on the cross, having our sins so that we are dying with Christ and then born again with Christ. This is what it means to be born again. It means to have died with Jesus and to be raised and to be living here right now in the power of Jesus. So, the resurrection, the glory of our faith, the power of God. What do we learn from the resurrection that should change our lives? Well, I would say the first thing that's, that's obvious is that modern man is no different than ancient man. He thinks, as man has always thought, human race has always considered its mind 
the operative thing, the important thing, and what its body does, unimportant. All right? So I can have one conception of myself in my mind, but with my lips and my hands and my feet and my ears and my eyes, I do other things. But the conception I hold of myself in my brain is pure, pristine, glorious, and that's who I really am. The Bible makes very, very clear that the body is important to God and not something lesser than and sort of subsidiary to the, man, the mind or the brain or whatever the level of our consciousness is. So we like to think we're minds, that our bodies are at best sort of support vehicles which break down at times, which which house the mind, kind of like an aircraft carrier for the mind, you know? The mind is the jet that goes woom, 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 zoom, 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 and then it has to come back every once in a while to the, to the mothership and be nurtured and suckered and, you know, get fuel, and then woom, it's off again. The glorious mind, and this is simply not the truth. For a moment, imagine what your mind would be if it did not have the body. Imagine a mind without ears, never engaging in, in discourse, never hearing. Imagine the mind without a tongue, unable to express itself. Imagine the mind without eyes. Imagine a mind that is this wonderful beautiful, powerful thing that can't feel a hug or a kiss or a caress. Imagine a mind by itself. It can't reproduce. It doesn't know what it is to to have the joy of union with a man or a woman, the joy of reproduction, the joy of holding the body of a child, which is precious to God, even though the mind is almost undeveloped. It's fascinating to see in the Gospels that the demons are terrified of being sent into the void. Demons are, are spirit, but spirits without agency. They need God's power. They need a body. They need something to effect things. So God at times lets them work within a body. God will give them the ability to, to do things, but they're limited by virtue of being spirits in what they can accomplish. So when Jesus comes to the the man who has a legion of demons in him over in Gadara, which is on the far side of the the Sea of Galilee, that man with all the legions, or the the legion of, how many men were in a legion? A thousand? A a thousand demons in him. This man, uh, Jesus comes up and says to the demons, and they plead with Jesus and say, don't send us into the void. Don't put us in that area where there's nothing and we can do nothing and it's darkness. Don't do that to us. They would rather have the bodies of the pigs. They said, send us into the pigs because at least if they're clothed in some kind of flesh, they have some ability rather than the dark and loneliness of their spirit beings. And when Satan wants to tempt Eve and Adam, he has to take the body of a serpent. 
He can't do it on his own. Jesus says that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, deserts, dry, arid, seeking rest and does not find it. There's no rest for the spirit when it's in that kind of place. So it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. So we must understand that to God, your body is fundamentally important. That Jesus died for your body and not for your mind alone. That your body will one day be raised. That your body is precious to God. Second thing we need to understand Not only is the body important to God, not only is the body, the the way we affect God's will and obey him or disobey him, not only is the body who we are, but we find that when the body is raised and the soul is reunited with the body, which is what happens at the resurrection, It is a body that is at one and the same time recognizably the body that went down into the grave and yet also a very different and distinct and much improved body from the the prior purely physical body. Jesus' body, when he came out of the grave, had holes in its hands and sides. They were real, they were visible. You could put your fingers in them as Jesus said to Thomas, put your fingers in my hand and side, but they didn't bleed, did they? holes but they weren't bleeding and that resurrected body of Christ could pass through closed and locked doors now it could eat food and Christ did eat food in his resurrected body but his resurrected body was also able to float in the air up to heaven and at the resurrection we're told that all of our bodies will go and meet Christ in the sky and so the body is recognizably the same but dramatically different following the resurrection. So in the resurrection, your body will be recognizably you, but vastly, vastly superior. I think of my brothers, Joe, my brother who died at 18, will be a young man. He'll be 18 years old in the resurrection but not with hemophilia. He won't bleed to death. Nathan, my brother who died at 39, he'll be a grown man of 39, as he was when he died. Danny, my brother will be four. Johnny, it'll be a baby. They will be as they were in life, but not limited as they were in life at those ages. Joe no longer has hemophilia. Nate My brother who died of cystic fibrosis won't have the cough, the chronic (coughs) that accompanied him for decades of cystic fibrosis. Danny will no longer suffer from leukemia. And Johnny, his mind will not be the mind of an infant. He will know God. Fat will no longer be fat in the new birth. Ugly will no longer exist all will be 
beautiful. Weakness will be strength and there will be glory on every brow. Not just some. There will be no beautiful people in heaven. Christ will be beautiful and everyone who is in him will be beautiful. Perfect minds, perfect bodies, glory all around. So spend your body. Bruise it, beat it. Do what you must to serve God with your body. Make it your servant so that your body declares the glory of him who made it and who will bring it into his presence one day. Let there be scars on your body because you've borne the suffering for Jesus. Let your body be wasted. One day it will rise and it will be all the more glorious for those marks and those wastings and those things that you've gone through. Third, the resurrection proves something beyond our body. Something that is deeper. You may wonder, is the resurrection vital to our lives today? Don't we just need the work of Christ on the cross? Isn't that all we need for him to carry our sin? Didn't his sacrifice there and his body entering the grave and his descent into hell, his separation from the Father complete his work? Isn't the price of sin under the justice of God paid by that death? And are we not saved by the cross rather than the resurrection? Well, yes, the cross did pay the debt. The cross and the descent into the grave of Christ did satisfy the wrath of God. But a God who is satisfied, a God who is technically speaking propitiated, which means his wrath taken away, is not necessarily a man justified. In other words, God's wrath can be removed, but where does that leave the man who was the object of that wrath? That wrath may be gone, but where are you? In limbo? Some kind of marginal space between heaven and hell, hanging around in some form of celestial suspended judgment and animation, like forgiven but not quite there? Oh, you know this place I'm speaking about. Years ago, I had a friend. That friend was a pastor who was unfaithful to his wife. Tragic. And the first people they came to to talk about it when he admitted it to his wife was us. Saturday morning. They came to us 30-some years, 35 years ago for counsel. We talked with them at great length, but finally we said to the wife, the Bible says that if your husband has been unfaithful to you, you are free to divorce him. And she said, I know. And we said, you're going to have to choose soon what you're going to do. You are permitted divorce. If you want to go that route, we support you. And we understand that could be God's will for you. But if you choose not to go that route, and you decide that the route of forgiveness and reconciliation is the path for you, Remember, you don't get a 10-year escape clause from your marriage. You don't get the rest of your lifetime to say, you did this, I can at any time hold this like the sword of Damocles over you. And when I drop it, ha, so you better be on your best behavior. He said, you have to choose your path, and then you must hold to that path. And so 
she said she wanted to forgive. It may have been too early for her to know. You know, we weren't pushing for a decision then. We were just saying, these are the choices you face. She said, I want to forgive. And he said, well, you, you must forgive then. If you say you're going to forgive, you must not hold this eternally over his head. Can you do that? She said, I can't. He said, you've got to realize that this guy is a bum. I'm not saying that they weren't both sinners, but this guy has done something awful. He's a stinky man in many ways, and you're going to have to live with that stink for years. It may not be the, the stink of what he's just done, but he's going to continue to sin. And that smell that comes from his sin will cause you many frustrations in years to come. And we said, you must understand as well that a man who did this may do it again. She said, I want to forgive him. And she said that for weeks and months. So what happened? Well, exactly as you might fear. I don't know if he fully repented. I do know that she didn't fully forgive. She held this thing over his head for years. He never fully came back in that relationship. Never. But also, you know, he never really fully accepted the weight of what he'd done. And he returned to that sin and they ended up divorced years later. Suspended animation. You know, I've forgiven you, but we're not back. You know, you've seen this in life. You know, you go through a bankruptcy and they say, okay, your wife, that is wiped clean, but we're not giving you another loan. You're not getting anything more from us. We've done this to others ourselves. Okay, I forgive you, but I'm not putting myself at risk again, right? This is not what God does, and this is the glory of the resurrection. Glory of the resurrection is that Jesus goes down and he pays the price absolutely fully. And when God raises him, he raises everyone for whom Christ died as well. So much so that the Bible says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God made you alive when you were his enemy and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has raised you. He has not said you're on probation he has raised you to his right hand and you are seated there in Jesus Christ. Wow. This is the, the glory of the spiritual meaning of the resurrection. You are one with Christ. You are forgiven by the Father. You are at the throne of God as a son. Finally, 
the resurrection gives us power. Gives us power. Have you been born again? By being born again, I don't mean simply that you've prayed a sinner's prayer, or you've made a decision for Christ, or you've done something in yourself. Born again, remember, goes down into the grave with Christ, but then rises with him. Have you been born again? Have you risen with Christ? Do you know the glory of being seated at the right hand of God? And are you living as a man or a woman who really is at the right hand of God right now, fighting and winning against sin, living boldly before the world for Jesus? Do you know what it is to be born again? If not, if your life is mired somewhere short of the glory of God, Go to Christ this morning and say, I must have you. Pray to him and ask him to give you the glory of the resurrection as your own personal glory. He will do it.